Kelly, I'd like to talk to you about my feelings. No, Lonnie. I really think you should talk about your feelings, too. Nope. I think if you can just open up to that inner child inside and let her play, you'll find that little light of yours, and then it can shine. Nope. All right, new plan. We drink whiskey and make fun of two really bad episodes of Angel. Deal. Welcome to Still Dead. I'm researcher and Southern Fried Scholar, Dr. Kelly Jones. And I'm story expert, Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. And we're here today to talk about Angel, Season 1, Episodes 6 and 7, Sense and Sensitivity, and The Bachelor Party, both of which are skippers, meaning you didn't have to watch them, but if you did, well, we're here for you. <laughs> right, this is, this is an emotional <laughs> support episode of Still Dead. <laughs> All right, let's raise the stakes. When Kate puts away Little Tony monster stereotype, his legal firm, Wolferman Hart, sends in a demon enchanter to break him out. The plan, and this is a good one, so listen up. The plan is to make everyone super sensitive and thoughtful and talkative with a magic stick. No, I'm not kidding you. Yes, a magic stick. And then, somehow, that will result in chaos at the police station, and it'll get little Tony free. Despite this being literally the stupidest plan ever in the history of ever, it works! A cop frees all the prisoners, but when little Tony tries to kill Kate for having the nerve to do her damn job, Angel steps in and slaps him down, despite having been hit with the sensitivity whammy stick. To quote Cordy, when Angel hugs her and Doyle, Ew, ew, ew! Sense and Sensitivity aired on November 9th, 1999. It was directed by James A. Cotner and written by Tim Minear. This is the first of 18 episodes that Minear will write for Angel, and we're glad to report it gets better. Yes, it does. Tim Minear is actually pretty good. This is not his, his best outing. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. So, Dr. Jones, give me your moments of perfect happiness from Sense and Sensitivity. Well, <laughs> so <laughs> delimitations create space for creativity, right? Sure, sure. <laughs> so I pretended that this episode was a Mad Lib experiment <laughs> gone wrong. <laughs> the writers got together and decided at random points in a script, we're going to insert nonsensical psychology and self-help phrases. That will be awesome. <laughs> and then they all got very drunk and wrote Sense and Sensitivity. All right. I headcanon that. I completely, I sanctioned that (laughs) headcanon. So watching it that way was hilarious. Yes. Pop psychology, Mad Lib drinking game. And so I wrote down some of the cheesy lines from the episode. Mm -hmm. And in honor of Mandy Kay, who's our producer for this episode, I'm going to read them. (laughs) In a Southern drawl. Oh, I love it. There's always time to be considerate of others, Cordelia. I love it. (laughs) There's a stick that talks? I'm feeling some serious negative energy in this room, (laughs) y'all. Closeness is too important to me right now. Oh, man. I've got emotional whiplash. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right. That's adorable, especially because none of those were said by Kate, who was supposed to be like the super sensitive one in this episode. Right? Those are angel lines. (laughs) Those are Angel and uh, Cordelia and one of the cops. (laughs) Oh, my God. That cracks me up. (laughs) That was a beautiful reading. I think we should have you do Southern readings of lines, by the way, like every week. I think we need to have that as a regular feature. (laughs) Well, I got to say, out of my, I had a few moments of, of maybe not perfect happiness, but happiness, you know, in this, uh, in this episode. And one of them is Angel, whenever he's in character, like when he steps out and he's like, I'm Herb Saunders from Baltimore, <laughs> you know, um, that cracks me up. And he just happened to have, I guess, an, a Hawaiian shirt, like in the back of his car that he mm-hmm. just sort of carries around in case he has to hop into character, which I like. It speaks to Angel's preparedness, you know, the little boy scout inside the vampire. I like that. <laughs> Oh, my God. So what about you? What else you got? Well, my thought was, where did Angel get the tourist Hawaiian shirt and hat? Because first it was a cream colored sweater. Mm -hmm. Now this. And I want to see Angel's closet. Well, (laughs) yeah. Because, I mean, I figure he's got to have like a box in the trunk. Right. Just full of stuff that he can throw on in case he needs to have a disguise because, you know, he's a detective. He takes this seriously. Every now and again, you got to put on a persona, which is right. like one of my favorite things. Whenever Angel, I don't care how bad the episode is, when Angel puts on a persona, I am so there for it. I absolutely love it. Yeah, it was really <laughs> funny. Um, and as much as I hate this episode, there was some really funny dialogue. Mm-hmm. So I liked Cordelia said to Angel, it is possible to brood and show a little interest in the feelings of others. That's <laughs> funny. Like, come on, Angel, multitask here, baby. Calling out the and, brooding. Whenever they call out the brooding, like in yeah. the actual text, it's always kind of fun. It is funny. And when Kate was all hopped up on emotional drunkenness, Cordelia <laughs> said, can we get you some coffee or Valium? Or both. <laughs> and I thought, you know, you know how like the the stereotypical magazine 1950s housewife was supposed to meet her husband at the door with a martini? Right. So like my head canon or like dream is this wonderful person waiting for me at home to say, can I get you some coffee or Valium? Right. <laughs> It would be perfect. <laughs> that would be absolutely wonderful. You know, and as much as the patriarchy sucks, I kind of don't blame them for some of this because I would like to come home to somebody <laughs> making a martini for me. Right. I, yeah, I mean, I, it, although it probably a be... whiskey sour or something. But yeah, not a martini. Exactly. Yeah. Not a martini. Just, you know, <laughs> whiskey neat. But I mean, it could be Phantom Dennis. Oh, sure. Like, I am Dennis. perfectly open to alternative partnerships. A ghost right. would be fine. <laughs> right. Where on the Kinsey scale is the ghost relationship, I wonder? Oh. <laughs> That's an interesting question. That is an interesting question. <laughs> but my favorite line was Cordelia said to Angel, You've got pensive face. And Angel said, I've always got pensive face. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice the way they know each other. Yeah. <laughs> this is really good. I also loved in this, and I, you know, and I have to say, like, as much as I hate Kate. Sensitivity drunk Kate in Angel's office is my favorite Kate so far. Now, granted, that is a, a fairly low bar, but that moment where she's like, we all need so much, you know, <laughs> and it wasn't, I don't, I honestly don't know if I liked the performance or the performance was so bad that it's like E.T. when he's so ugly, he flips into being cute, you know, <laughs> just like that thing. And I loved, of course, the moment that Cordy said, you, 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 when Angel hugged her. Yeah. 
that was hilarious. Um, but Angel also having that sensitivity. Angel in a different context is like my favorite thing. Because, you know, we get broody Angel a lot. And, and you know, and that's good for an episode or two. But we've had it now for three years, you know. So after a while, it gets a little old. And so when he was being all sensitive and he's like, you both withdraw when I go vamp. I feel you judge me. You know, I thought that that was really adorable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, honestly, like on, on an honest emotional note, you know, the whole thing with Kate and her dad was really terrible. But that moment at the end when he says, you embarrassed me, well, let's just never talk about it. And he's not saying, let's just never talk about it because I don't want to embarrass you. I don't want you to feel bad. He's like, let's never talk about it because you humiliated me and I'm angry with you. Right. Um, and that I thought was really heartbreaking. And that was actually a moment of real vulnerability for Kate that I, I liked, you know? So, I mean, there wasn't everything in this wasn't bad. Yeah, I Just mean, Kate's, Kate's dad was the worst. And yeah. maybe she has a good reason for being such a jerk. <laughs> but Yeah, you can kind of understand it a little bit more. But still, I don't think it justifies no. what we've done with the character. We don't have to do that with the character. No, you know? not that badly. Yeah. Um, and, and as disappointed as I was to see the other junior lawyer instead of Lindsay, yeah. I liked when Wolfram and Hart fired little Tony as a client. Yeah. They were like, the senior partners feel you've become a liability. Like, yeah. <laughs> by Felicia. No. I, I, I like that. It. I like where he's like, Felicia. <laughs> I like where he's like, you know, we are loyal to our clients. We take care of our clients. But once you expose us, We'll cut you off, you mm-hmm. know? So that was kind of nice, and I liked that. I liked that a lot. All right, so that pretty much exhausts our list of moments of perfect <laughs> happiness in a couple of minutes. So uh, what do you want to stake? So, you know, if I didn't hate Kate before this episode, this one would have done the trick. Right. But, but completely out of the emotional sensitivity context, when Angel's fighting the monster, like that gross monster at the beginning, why does there have to be slime? Oh, there's like, always slime. There's always slime, and it's gross, uh, and it's demon <laughs> slime. And I'm just like, ooh, ooh, ooh. That was my ooh, ooh, ooh. Like, ugh, yes, exactly. I don't like it. And, <laughs> and then when Kate's dad said... I'm relieved to see her out with a man. I was starting to think she leaned the other direction altogether. Mm -hmm. It's like yet another heteronormative insult on the show. And we need to queer up Angel in the worst way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't. I I mean, I guess like it was when a line like that is given to a bad guy and her dad is very much a bad guy, then Mm -hmm. we're making a statement that it's not okay. So at least it didn't come from one of our, you know, main core that we like, you know? Yeah. So at least there's that. But yeah, I feel like there really is such a strong heteronormative, like almost invisibility, like they can't see anything, Mm -hmm. you know, except to insult it. And So, yeah, so that I don't particularly care for. (laughs) Yeah, I just, it it bugs me. And I'm sorry, but making fun of poetry Mm -hmm. just isn't funny. So, you know, we had one of the cops composed a poem for a prisoner he mistreated. And, Mm -hmm. you know, poetry is good, period. (laughs) Right. Well, I hate poetry, so that one didn't really stand out for me. (laughs) (laughs) I bet if I hit you with it. That I hate, though. It's this... (laughs) <laughs> like affected sort of, you know, but but at the same time, anybody who writes poetry, and this comes from somebody like, I hate poetry. Dr. Jones loves it. I hate it. Um, but I, I mean, I like 
the good poetry, like the really good poetry, you know, the stuff that's um, that is is this wonderful, like, you know, heroin shot of expression can be really incredibly beautiful. But so much poetry is so easy to do so badly and it becomes this kind of thing. But at the same time, whenever someone is reading poetry that they've written, that is such a hugely vulnerable moment and to mock it makes it worse. Yes, I agree. So yeah, so that's tough. Um, So basically in this episode, I wanted to stake Kate, which Mm -hmm. is probably not a big surprise. Um, (laughs) You know, and I mean, the thing is, and this drives me crazy because they do this all the time. I mean, they do this on Buffy all the time. So I got to say, when you're a cop or a slayer or somebody who has to chase after, like, they're always wearing heels. They make these women run in heels. And like, if you know you're going to be out, you know, like you're not at the dance club, you're expecting that you're going to be slaying or chasing bad guys, you wear sneakers, you know, like you or make boots. sure that you, they always <laughs> run in these heels. And it makes me crazy. And I feel so bad for like the, the female actors, you yeah. know, who have to wear those heels during those scenes. I don't even know how many have turned an ankle doing that kind of thing. I mean, it's got to be terrible. Yeah. Um, there's also that moment with Kate where he's like, oh, you don't want a reputation for going outside of the, you know, outside of the um, police office. Right. You know, and she's like, I don't want a reputation for getting you killed. And I'm like, is that? Is that supposed to be flirting? Is that what that is? Because A, it doesn't work. And B, like, you're not at that place with Angel, you know, where yeah. you can really care that much about whether or not he gets he gets killed. So if that's flirting, I think you're doing it wrong, Kate, you know? Yeah. And, and speaking of flirting done wrong, she pulled the training memo out of her dress. Like, mm-hmm. what the hell? <laughs> You know what? I do that. No, but seriously, I do that all the time. Like, I carry paperwork in my bra every damn day. (laughs) This is another reason why all women's apparel should come with pockets. I know. This is a very recent feminist movement, this pockets thing. But seriously, (laughs) just put a pocket in it. It's fine. (laughs) Or a real one. Have you ever bought a pair of pants and then you put your hand in the pocket and it's sewn up at the top? It is a false pocket. And I'm like, what is that about? It's just mean. Like, I know. I mean, they want to like, you know, it's the whole thing. Women's clothing must have a slim profile, you know, and whatever. But you can find a way to get a pocket in there. I'm sorry. Absolutely. Oh, my God. No, it's terrible. Um, You know, and so she says that the reason that she wants Angel out of there is so that he'll be safe. But then she gets mad at him, even though he's the reason she caught her guy. And now she's worried about getting in trouble. Like, pick a lane, Kate. You know, I mean... Yeah. I don't know. All of it annoys me. And and when Angel helps you find a super bad guy that no one else can find, you fucking say, thank you. Yes. Not, look, just go. I'll figure something out to tell my lieutenant. Wine, right. wine, 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 wine. Oh, my God. Like, she's trying to be a badass, but she's really just a whiny bully. <laughs> no, she really is. She's awful. And there's that moment too when Lee Mercer says that Thorn is about to be removed permanently. And Lee Mercer <laughs> is the guy. I mean, I don't know if we had his name established here, but this is the not Lindsay, right? You know, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll find it. We'll get his name later. The but not I'll, just, I'll spoil that. <laughs> the not Lindsay, right? So not, not Lindsay. Lindsay says that. And in that moment, all I can think is, sounds good. That's a plan. Do it. You know, get her out. Get her out. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. So, um, yeah, it's it's so incredibly painful. And her speech at the bar, I mean, oh, my God. All right, so you have the speech. Can, can you do it in Southern accent for me? Oh, yeah. I just pulled a couple of lines. <laughs> right. 
You couldn't even tell a scared little girl a beautiful lie. Do you realize that you've never told me I'm pretty? I can't campaign for the office of your beloved daughter. <laughs> oh, my fucking God. And okay, it's better when you do it, though. <laughs> the worst part wasn't even the delivery. It was that she can't even cry. There yeah. were no tears. This little sob, little sob, fake cry, fake cry. Oh, my oh, God. Oh, fake cry is so difficult. Like, those vulnerable moments and, you know, for actors, and I will tell you something, like anybody, and obviously you guys have heard me do our little skits at the beginning of these, you know, episodes. And like, <laughs> So you know I can't act. Like, it's just not yeah, who me I am. I have, <laughs> I have lots of skill sets. Acting ain't one of them. It is hard. I mean, it is super hard to do it. But if you are a professional actor, you need to be able to pull on that emotion believably. And the thing with this woman, and I want to like her, and I really hate, you know, slapping the actors down, especially when the writing isn't good, because that's not their fault, you know. But Elizabeth Rome just does not have it as an actor. Like she can't quite get there. And I feel like she got the part because she's so incredibly pretty and she is beautiful. But like, there's gotta be more there. I mean, you know, Charisma Carpenter, also incredibly beautiful, but she can pull out, you know, these other emotions. And yes. Elizabeth Rome <laughs> just can't. And it really, like, I feel bad for it, but it's it's just, it's kind of painful to watch. It's a little bit cringy. Yeah, it's it's bad. It's just yeah. bad. And so. I hate I hate picking on people like that. But yeah, it's just, me too. It's just but it's I mean, you good. know, and I say that as someone who just read that incredibly cringy and silly. But I'm not a professional actor. So well, it's you're okay. not trying to do this. And you're not <laughs> no. selling yourself as a professional actor. When you do it, it's funny because you got that southern accent, you know, which I obviously <laughs> also cannot do. I can do I can do like New York accents like that's it. Everything else I'm terrible, terrible at. Um, so other things I wanted to stake, uh, you know, it wasn't an irony smash exactly, but it's like mm-hmm. a cousin of the irony smash, which is like the irony foreground thing. Oh. Like Cordelia's <laughs> talking about how insensitive Angel is while ignoring in the background Doyle is getting choked by the demon behind her and the humor is really broad and it's not funny and that tentacle effect yeah was not was not good like you know the actor Glenn Quinn was actually holding the tentacle to his like, didn't have anything <laughs> going on so it it just stand know, back just while I attack myself with this tentacle exactly. I can make I it look real don't worry <laughs> why, I got this. why are you hitting yourself Doyle why are you hitting yourself <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty terrible. And the thing is that, you know, we get a lot of goofy stuff like that in Angel. Angel is going to be giving us a lot of goofy humor, and it's never my favorite stuff. I mean, Angel is dark and grimy, and the jokes that are anchored in character definitely work. You know, like, you know, you've got pensive face. I always have pensive face. Stuff like Mm -hmm. that that's, that's really anchored in character work really well on Angel. So it's not that the show can't be funny, but these kind of goofy bits never really work. I mean, not that that stops them from trying almost constantly we're gonna have so much goofy angel to discuss by the time we're done oh yeah and and i really tried hard to salvage some big idea from this episode and the only thing i could think of was maybe this is an example of a character getting what they say they want like cordelia wants angel to be more sensitive in the beginning and then we get this circus show of sensitivity right right but honestly i can't give the episode that much credit (laughs) 
No, I think that they were going less for the theme of, you know, careful what you wish for and more with the irony, you know, because they do love, I mean, Joss Whedon loves irony more than anything. Irony and sarcasm. The man has (laughs) never actually had a straight word come out of his mouth. If you ever listen to um, an interview with him or read an interview, constant, constant sarcasm. Um, And so, you know, which is fine. Like I, I enjoy sarcasm as well. I enjoy irony as well, but it just seems like that's the well they're going to rather than really looking at a deeper thematic place. But I think it's incredibly kind of you to look for that. I like oh, that. I like I tried. to find it. <laughs> and I, I would say the last thing that I wanted to stake in this was the line from Angel. As much as I love Sensitive Angel, and I think the Sensitive Angel is really fun, there was something about you could be a rainbow and not a pain bow. Mm. Like, that was too much. Uh-oh. That was just beyond. Hands yeah. down the cheesiest line in all of Angel, and that is saying something. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. (laughs) All right. So that moves us over into research mode. So you usually come up with really great things to ask questions about in these episodes. So what do you got for me? (laughs) Okay. So this is research mode slash Kelly's going to rant about the human brain. So (laughs) my, my first question was, could this episode have been any worse? <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> that is an unanswered question. <laughs> yeah. It, but I really do think for me, this is the worst episode in all of Angel. So, Oh, not for me. But it's, no, really? it's down there. It, oh, oh, boy. Yeah, there's, there's worse coming. There's worse coming okay. this season. Yeah. There's... Oh, all right. Well, maybe I'm wrong. That'll Because sometimes I block out or forget the really bad ones. <laughs> well, you do because the good parts are so good. Yeah. And you know, this you one. You just kind of forget the bad stuff. Yeah. This yeah. one I always remember because I can watch it as it you know, is it being funny? So yeah. maybe there is worse yet to come. Okay, so that research question is still open. Oh, I um, think so, yeah. <laughs> but sensitivity training is the wrong word for what they show in this episode. Right. Group therapy is not the same thing as sensitivity training. So yes. this is like a farce of group talk therapy. This is not empathy or diversity or inclusion training right. because good emotional training focuses on the other. On walking in someone else's shoes and becoming aware of your own lens and privilege and perspective. And this was just sensitivity hunch punch. Yes, absolutely. I love that sensitivity hunch punch. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Also, you cannot give someone a talking stick without a relevant prompt and instructional (laughs) scaffolding. There's no excuse for bad pedagogy, even if the class was planned by an evil law firm. Oh, my God. I love it. I love the way that you get offended by bad instructions, (laughs) bad instructional work, the way that I get offended by, like, bad writing devices. Yeah. It's not even the evil that bothers me so much. It's the bad teaching. (laughs) Just do it well. Like, I don't care. (laughs) Just do it well. Right. And also, like, okay, so let me ask you this. All right. How is this supposed to work? It is a terrible plan you have to rely on one of the cops getting so sensitive that they just let everybody out of jail and little tony is one of them and you cannot possibly control for that like a good evil plan is controlled it means that it could not possibly turn out any other way this is just an invitation to chaos you know but it was an excuse for us to have kate and angel be all sensitivity drunk so we built this whole thing but from the antagonist pov it doesn't make any sense. No, it, it makes absolutely no sense. And from a neurological perspective, that magical talking stick would have to enchant your entire limbic system and mm-hmm. make parts of your brain interfere with each other in weird ways while still working in other correct ways in <laughs> order to function the way we see in this episode. Yeah. So it 
the amygdala controls strong emotional responses like fear mm-hmm. and love and anger and desire. So overstimulation of the amygdala causes excessive reactions. Mm-hmm. If we saw everyone on emotional overdrive in character with their normal emotions dialed up to 11, that would make sense. Right. But that ain't what we saw. No, no. Well, I, I, I highly doubt, and I could be wrong. So if anybody was working on the show at the time, by all means, you know, call into the hotline. But <laughs> I, could be, I don't think that they like consulted anybody about how the brain works. And again, like when it comes right down to it, whenever we make a scientific argument, they can always be like, oh, but it's magic, you know? And like, yes, it's, it's a magic spell. It's a demon enchanted thing. Like, okay. So it's meant to work in a very specific way. But still, when you keep those things, even though they are outside reality, all of these metaphors are supposed to stand for reality. A metaphor doesn't work if it doesn't anchor itself in reality. So even though you can have the argument that it's a magical, you know, whoosie whatsy, whatever, right? <laughs> um, it doesn't, it, you still have to have it anchored in some space in reality. And none of it was anchored enough to make that metaphor work. No, not even close, yeah. because mm-hmm. it was a spell on the human brain, and the human brain works a certain way. And so right. if we had seen everybody have the same kind of reaction, that would have made sense. Yes. If we had seen everybody in their normal selves enhanced in some way, that would have made sense. So I kept trying to figure out how this magic could possibly work, right? Mm-hmm. So we know that it didn't attack the amygdala. Well, the hippocampus works with the amygdala to process emotional memories. Mm -hmm. We saw Kate go through some emotional memories, but nobody Mm -hmm. else. So you could whammy the hippocampus and lock everyone in a state of overwhelming emotional memories, and that would make sense. Mm -hmm. But that ain't what we saw. Right. And the prefrontal cortex leads our decision-making and behavior based on our emotions and our social learning. Obviously, the talking stick messed with the prefrontal cortex, but some people were able to make calm decisions while under the spell, and some even tried to make poetic gestures. And the hypothalamus is the regulator of our emotion, keeping our levels of anger, desire, aggression, and pleasure in check and balance. Mm -hmm. We didn't see people resorting to their basic id state, like, you know, seeking out their desires and revenges without thought to the consequences. So that function of the brain doesn't make sense with this magic either. Like there is maybe magic, but you're still working with the human brain. I, I mean, come on. Yeah. There mm-hmm. is not an oversensitive and therefore passive and overly polite in the face of danger area of the brain. Like <laughs> it doesn't exist. <laughs> we wouldn't you have know? survived if that was what happened. No. And the lizard brain, that oldest mm-hmm. part of the brain charged with our basic physical survival overrules the limbic system Mm -hmm. and if the spell had affected the lizard brain we would not see people acting like they were doped up and emotionally drunk like Mm -hmm. making people ignore the fight or flight response in the face of danger could have made the precinct a good place to control the police but it would not have made them oversensitive and weepy Mm -hmm. so the magical effect we see from this training just doesn't make any sense it yeah. didn't amplify people's real emotion or do a bunch of amygdala hijacking. It just made everyone feel overly sensitive and not fight the bad guys. And if you have magic that can do that, why can't yeah. you just hypnotize a guard or zap little Tony right out of a cell? <laughs> like sure. the, the only thing they got right here was commentary on the dangers of keeping our emotions bottled up. Mm-hmm. But if you want to see a police precinct controlled by magic story done right, 
go look to Kilgrave on Jessica Jones. Oh, Because yeah. it's hella creepy, but damn effective. Yes, absolutely. Okay. And I will be talking about that eventually over on Listen Up A-Holes, the Marvel Cinematic Universe wait. podcast. I can't wait. With Joshua Unruh <laughs> of Pulp Diction Productions. So yes, absolutely. Um, that I think is so brilliant. I love the way that you went into the real brain chemistry. And when you think about that, like as, as writers, are there any writers out there listening? That is what you want to do. Like, you've got to be able to, like, learn a little something. Talk to, to Kelly Jones. You want to talk about the brain. Talk to somebody <laughs> who's a specialist. And find a way to make your magic work with a reality. Because when it's anchored in reality, like, we instinctively know, yeah, that doesn't look right. You know, mm -hmm. we instinctively know, even if we don't understand how the brain works, we all have one. You know, and we've all had these experiences. So we, we know, you know, like how how we feel and how our emotions work and all that kind of stuff. So when you see stuff like this, you just know it's off and it doesn't and then it doesn't give you the anchoring that you need in order to make that effective. Yes, absolutely. So do the research. Just do a little bit of research and anchor your magic in, in some level of a real system, the way real systems work. And that's the way to go. So um, so that leaves us with our one to brood on. And this one, as we have stated, I think, enough for everybody to understand. <laughs> definite, definite skipper. The only thing overall that you get from this episode is that Wolfman Hart is seeing Angel as a greater threat. So they are feeling the presence of Angel messing with, you know, their objectives and and so they're they're keeping an eye on the new player in town. So we kind of get that out of this. But that is really the only thing you need from this episode. Yeah. <laughs> and so that moves us into the bachelor party. When Doyle's ex-wife, Harry, shows up needing him to sign divorce papers so that she can get remarried, Doyle sends Angel out to check up the new guy, Richard. Angel follows him and sees him buying a suspicious package from a guy in the car. Richard's a drug dealer. Angel follows him to his restaurant and sees him turn into a demon. Oh no, Richard's a demon drug dealer. Harry comes in with packages and when Richard picks up a knife, Angel leaps through the window only to discover that Harry knows Richard's a demon, the suspicious package was frog legs, and the knife was for opening packages. Whew. But then Richard invites Doyle to the bachelor party and tries to eat his brains because, you know, reasons. Harry breaks it off with Richard, Doyle mopes around the office, and then he gets a vision of Buffy. The Bachelor Party aired on November 16th, 1999. It was directed by David Strayton and written by Tracy Stern. This is the first of three episodes Strayton will direct for Angel and the first of two that will be written by Stern. Personally, I like to believe they went off to start a buddy cop show called Stern and Strayton, and that's going to be my headcanon. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> All right, so The Bachelor Party... Also, not a great episode. Also, no. a skipper, as we have established. Um, all right. So did you have any moments of perfect happiness in this? I did. I actually <laughs> ended up liking this episode more than I remembered liking this episode. Okay, good. So there's this quiet moment at the beginning with Angel sitting at his desk. And I mm -hmm. love seeing Angel with books. Mm -hmm. There's just something incredibly sexy and compelling about watching smart people read. And no, there is. Yeah. Yes. You know, and I like that just still life mm -hmm. moment that we get with him when he's not Batmaning yeah. or moping. And I really right. liked it. And in that book is a photo of Buffy. Yeah. And 
Angel loves her so much, like in his quiet, constant way, and it's so tender and tragic. And I hate the star-crossed lovers trope, but this always pulls at my heart. Right, but the thing is that the star-crossed lovers thing, like that's romance, you know? This thing with Angel and Buffy is a love story. You yeah. know, and the star-crossed lovers part is this wildly romantic, you know, they can't be together. He's a vampire. She's a slayer, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's great. Like, I love a good romance. I love, you know, romantic hyperbole. Like, I'm down for it, you know. <laughs> but this thing like that, he he left to save her. He left so that she could have a life, you know, without him because he knew that he wasn't going to be good for her, you know? And, um, and that was a, an act of love, you know? Yes. And the fact that he, he loves her, like he still, you know, obviously cares about her deeply. That is a moment of love, not romance. And I really like those. I think those are more powerful. I think so too. Like mm -hmm. it just says more about his real feelings for her and how constant and enduring that love is. And yeah. it just struck me as beautiful. Um, really and I loved that Cordelia was bored to tears on her date, even though that guy <laughs> was really rich, um, because she's learning there's more to life than money. And she's beginning to appreciate both the excitement and the purpose of working with Angel and Doyle and being part of their film family. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And then we had a uh, heavy metal hard rocker vamps and... <laughs> Like in my head, Canon, I think this was such a wasted opportunity for the perfect soundtrack because Queens and Another One Bites the Dust should have oh, been yeah. playing in this fight scene. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like that would Absolutely. have been amazing. <laughs> Well, you know, I got to say, though, speaking of the vamps, I like that Doyle dusts the vamp. Mm -hmm. It's a nice moment of capability for him and heroism for him. And mm -hmm. we've been a little short on those things for Doyle. <laughs> so it's kind of nice to give him something that that makes me like him a little bit more, you know. Yeah. Um, and I love that moment from Cordelia. I promised myself after Xander Harris that I would never date another fixer upper. Yeah. <laughs> So I love that moment from Cordelia. I think that that's great. And I, I have a friend so, who some months ago had said to me, she's like, when I was 24, I stopped dating men for their potential, you know? And I think that, yeah, there's a certain age where you got to just stop dating people for the potential of what they might be, you know, and like really deal with what they are. Um, so I like that, you know, and also the idea of a fixer upper is, is one of these like really degrading things that you have yeah. to like go in and change somebody. And of course we have this idea, both in our fiction and in our real life that you know a love of a good woman is going to fix a bad man no it won't no bad, bad won't. people got to fix themselves <laughs> or they're not going to get fixed and that's it like you cannot fix anybody you cannot change anybody um so I really liked that from Cordelia and I thought that was kind of like a nice a nice moment you know of of self-direction for her mm -hmm. I think so too and for me though this episode was really about Doyle and mm -hmm. hearing him called Francis and yeah. <laughs> like finding out his real name is Alan Francis Doyle. Like mm -hmm. I really liked learning his backstory and knowing that he wanted to be a teacher and have kids of his own and gave that up after learning he was half demon just made me feel really bad for him. And yeah. mm -hmm. he seems to truly love Harry and to want what's best for her. And I loved Angel's gentle approach talking to Doyle after Harry showed up and Angel agreeing to investigate Richard, especially when he said, just don't tell Cordelia, she'll want to charge you. <laughs> right. <laughs> See, he knows Cordelia. He knows Cordelia. Really well. 
<laughs> so funny. And I love Angel Batmaning off roofs. I oh, just yes, always. I never always. get tired of that. Every um, every Batman movement from Angel I absolutely love. Yeah, me too. And I really liked Harry's acceptance of Doyle's demon half. Mm-hmm. You know, she was like, I tried to get him to meet other demons. Like, go to at least <laughs> one mixer. <laughs> that was really great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I hurt for Doyle that he just couldn't accept himself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, in, in that moment, too, where she's, uh, Harry's giving um, Cordelia, like, Doyle's whole history, which, of course, is very shocking. And well, I like the history, but I'll get to it in the stake this part. It, it was a little bit heavy handed for me. But I like this moment where um, where Harry's talking about how he taught third grade. And she's like, are you sure he didn't just get held back and was using that as a cover story? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although I did wonder how he got his teaching credentials so young. Right, they were like twenty one. Like, she said he was only twenty one. So None of the age, what? no, the ages don't like. And Cordelia's age is still like yeah. she's immediately twenty four. Like you yeah. know, that's fine. So the ages don't really line up in this. But no, yeah. they don't. But the the final thing I really liked was the the last second of the episode when Doyle got the vision about Buffy, yeah. because just the look on his face, mm-hmm. you know, understanding who that was and what that was yeah. going to mean to Angel and. Angel's look and response, like it was, it was really well done. It was. But here's a question for you. This <laughs> will kind of like move us a little bit into the stake. This in the opening episode, right? Doyle gives Angel his entire life history. So Doyle must have gotten that entire life history from the powers that be. And the way that the powers that be communicate with Doyle is through vision. <laughs> <laughs> so he would have seen Buffy, you know. So I don't know. I mean, it was one. It's one of those things. that's just like slightly inconsistent, and and you know the the little nits that I pick when I watch these things. Oh. I was like, wait a minute. He would have already known what she looked like, you know, when he saw her picture at the beginning. You know, I but, didn't think. I didn't even think of that because yeah. if they had given Doyle Angel's history with the clarity that is their normal standard for visions, yeah. Doyle would be like. I think there's this guy in a black duster jumping off a roof. Don't know yeah. what I'm supposed to do with him. Like, sure. yeah, <laughs> so, how am I supposed? It's like he watched. It's like the the powers basically gave that gave him the first three seasons of Buffy. Yeah, you know, I think like, that's what they the did. Game. They sent him a DVD <laughs> and some popcorn, <laughs> like a handwritten note. You know, right, hey right. dude, watch this. So when this. he sees the picture in the beginning, like he knows who that is. Yeah, he that's true. That's yeah, really yeah. true. Hmm. Maybe they maybe they just wrote it out on a long scroll and they I didn't guess, illustrate oh, it. Scrolls are a thing. The powers love scrolls. We're going to discover I mean, that as we move through. They love yeah. scrolls. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what else did you what else did you want to stake? Well, I got to say, um, why is Cordy getting picked up at the office? Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. She has no, a nice apartment now. Like, she's getting picked up at the office. She doesn't drop her off at the office. Because I guess she says that's where her car is, which makes sense because she got picked up there. But getting ready at the office? Like, yeah. Cordy, Cordy doesn't bring her makeup and her, like, all of her stuff and her clothes to the office to get dolled up before. So the only thing I can think of is that she was getting dolled up so that, Doyle would but she's not interested in Doyle at that moment so no yeah, I've I have no idea I, I just thought they set it up so Doyle and Angel could play the overprotective yeah, no, exactly. misogynistic right. father role you know yeah, who so are you and what time are you bringing her home yeah to play was, that. so yeah I don't know 
I, it didn't it didn't make sense but again that's like nitpicky i don't know why i'm so nitpicky on this episode no i i wondered that too because yeah. i wouldn't have gotten ready at the office I no, you take <laughs> like, a half day yeah especially when you're getting paid what cordy's getting paid yeah and, and when your hair looks like that that takes some time it does like, <laughs> looking like cordy is a job of work i mean really <laughs> a job of work <laughs> yes. i like that well, I wanted to state Cordy's date when he yeah. ran off and left her when they were being attacked by vampires. Like, right. what an ass. But at the same time, I loved it when Cordy bit the vampire. Right. <laughs> it's so hard. taste of his own medicine, it's, right? Exactly. It was great. And mm-hmm. when she said, rich and handsome isn't enough for me, now I expect a guy to be all brave and interesting. Right. Like... <laughs> I can't decide if I really like that line or if I think it's too stereotypical, but I think it shows some growth for Cordy. It does show growth for Cordy. And I like her annoyance with it, too. Yeah, like, me now too. Now they need to be brave and interesting <laughs> and whatever. Like, like, I, I like that she's not like stretching to be a better person. She's getting stuck with being a better person. Yeah. It's annoying. <laughs> like, well, it's the same tone that I use. And I'm like, oh, great. Now I got to go feel emotional and right. figure exactly. out my feelings. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, but I hated Doyle pretending to be in charge in front of Harry and Angel going along with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's dishonest for one thing. Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. egotistical for another. And Mm -hmm. I I just, I hated that whole thing. Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's, and the thing is like Harry sees right through it. Like Harry obviously knows, you know. Um, So yeah, I, 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 it didn't bother me that much. And I liked that Angel was being supportive, you know, Mm -hmm. and was not all ego about it, that he was, you know, willing to play the role if that's what Doyle wanted, you know, but it was, it didn't make Doyle look good. It's, it's another thing that makes Doyle look like a petty jerk, you know, and we don't need that. Like we want more vulnerability and goodness from Doyle because he's getting a lot of petty jerk stuff. So yeah, yeah, that's not good. Um, You know, and the thing is like the structure of the episode bothered me because we wait so long to get to the point. I mean, we go through this whole thing with Cordy's date and we see Buffy's picture. And I mean, we need to see Buffy's picture because we're, we're, you know, showing that at the end. And and the fact that we have to show the picture was not just for Doyle, but for the audience so that if there is anybody watching this show who didn't watch all of Buffy also, that they will know what's going on to some degree. Right. Um, So I guess there's for the three people that might not have known who Buffy was um, that that was uh, you know a call out for them but we wait so long to get I mean this this episode is about Harry coming back you know this episode and but we have to do all of this stuff in the beginning we've got Cordy on her date and her date being a coward and then you know Doyle coming out and saving her and dusting a vamp and having this moment of heroism you know and we have all of that so that we can get to the point where Cordy's like actually thinking about Doyle but I mean the thing is that like we could have just opened with her leaving after dark you know at night and a vampire attacks her and Doyle comes and saves her and that's all you need you know to get to this to where when when Harry gets there you know um, that Cordelia is kind of looking at Doyle in a new way like that's all you need for that but this episode is really about Harry and we just take forever to get to her you know and Cordy suddenly liking Doyle you know, despite everything, like getting a little more respect for Doyle is one thing. Seeing right. that Doyle maybe has more to him than she thought is one thing. Mm-hmm. But to instantly go from, you know, Doyle is gross to, oh, my God, I think I like him. You know, like yeah. it just it felt 
too fast. It felt like too much of a turn. And then we get this sudden, you know, my wife thing so that it could be a big drama. It was like we had to set all of this up so that Cordy would be about to like Doyle a little bit. And then his wife would show up and she's like, your wife, you know, she's liked him for 35 seconds. You know, she's actually... (laughs) You know, I think she'd get over it a little bit faster than that and be like, all right, fine, you know, whatever, that's it. Um, You know, and then Doyle just being like kind of a dick, you know, about everything, you know, he's rude and and just, I don't know. And it it drives me crazy. But I think the thing in this that drove me the most crazy was the constant Mr. X, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Richard seems like a bad guy, but he's not a bad guy, but then he's a demon, but he's a good demon and Harry knows about it and that's fine. And she's an ethnodemonologist and they're totally peaceful, but then he wants to behead Doyle. It's like one misdirect is really annoying. You know, five of them in a row is downright abusive and I hate that constant turn. Like there's nothing that a writer loves more than like surprising the audience and like, (gasps) you know, Um, and I get it. Like, that's fun and everything, but you really have to earn it, you know, just setting up something and then finding out that we're wrong and that it's just a misunderstanding, you know, all the way through gets really annoying and it takes up time that you could spend building your characters and telling a good story and, you know, getting, so for me, like all the scaffolding that has to go up for a misdirect is annoying in the first place. But then Mm -hmm. when you do a ton of them in a row, it's like, all right, fine. You know, like, let's just, let's just move forward on this. So, yeah, Yeah. I don't know. Um, And then the other thing too, like, at the, you know, dinner with the family. So we see Richard with his family and they're all eating KFC like normal people and they're planning this bachelor party and then everybody's like, you invited the ex-husband, you know, and they're all horrified that he invited Doyle. And then we see that on the agenda, which was written down and printed out prior to this dinner, Doyle's brains are on the menu. So (laughs) he had to invite Doyle if they need the fresh brains. So... Uh, that whole thing again like it's just like that's just somebody not paying attention in the writing or they're so in love with this irony of these you know these demon people who are eating kfc i don't know it's just it's a bit much and also the demons look human and then look demon similar to the way that a vampire does so this would seem to be demons that work you know as far as the cosmology you know in a way similar to the vampire but yet it it's not the same thing like we don't really get a sense of why do they look like you know i mean doyle looks human half the times he's half human so he has that morphine as well right Mm -hmm. you know and these demons also have the morphine but like where does that come from i mean obviously they are part human you know or they're just demons that have this have a glamour ability but when they're all hanging out eating kfc you know we didn't want to do the costuming and the you know the latex for all of them i guess but like (laughs) why when they're just hanging out home and it's just them are they looking human like i don't know like the 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 build-up, I mean, this is the thing, again, like, you have to think about anchoring your metaphor in reality, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we don't have this really anchored in reality for, no. for what these people are like. I mean, with a vampire, they don't vamp, like, consciously, you know, really, they just vamp when the when the bloodlust is on them or when they're really angry, when somebody hits them in the face or whatever, you know. Um, so it's not really something that they do consciously, but these people have a conscious glamour or something. And I don't understand how all of that works with these particular details. Demons. It doesn't really make sense to me. No. If only there had been an ethnodemonologist on the show to explain it. Oh, yeah. Right. There was. Yes. She didn't. <laughs> <laughs> 
So what about you? What else you got? Richard Straling. I, yeah. I cannot stand this guy. <laughs> he is totally creepy, even before we find out that he's a demon and that he wants to eat Doyle's brains. I like, know. I mean, this is Carlos Jacot, right? And ugh. he's really good at that, like, looking like a good guy while being a bad guy. We saw him do that in the Buffy season three opener, Anne, right? Where yes. he was the demon that was kidnapping and all the kids. I hated him on that, too. Like, I just <laughs> <laughs> that that overly friendly, slimy, creepy. Yeah. I just, ugh, ugh, yeah. ugh. And then we have the ritual eating of the first husband's brains. And I'm like, mm-hmm. first of all, Ooh, and second of all, why? Like, ooh, I, I, right? Ugh, ugh. But I, I'll talk but, more about that in the yeah. research section. But <laughs> when Doyle comes to this bachelor party, and obviously he's uncomfortable, and this is difficult for him, and Richard is just like acting like they're BFFs, and he says, "What was she like, Doyle? Like, mm-hmm. fill me in on all the details of Harry." And I was like, "Oh my God, Richard needs some fucking boundaries." Right. Like, <laughs> I don't care if you're a demon, dude. Like, yeah, g- g- find the line. Like, right. that was not okay. <laughs> and the men at the bachelor party hire a stripper, while the women at the bridal shower play pornographic Pictionary and giggle because right. why? Because sex is great for men but bad for women. I don't think so. Yeah. And of mm-hmm. course, we have to cut between Angel fighting and the stripper dancing because male gaze. And right. it just struck me as incredibly sexist and juvenile. Well, they do have that, you know, there are a lot of things in Angel from some of the writers that I think, you know, have that kind of perspective on things like unquestioned, you yeah. know. So, yeah. Um, and, you know, the whole thing, like when Harry's talking about Doyle, he was a third grade teacher. He volunteered at soup kitchens. No, I'm sorry. Like, I understand he discovered he was half demon and that kind of threw him off. But like the core of who a person is doesn't essentially change. You know, I mean, not that much, you know, to the point where Doyle is what Doyle is now. Like that guy never spent time teaching third grade. Like he was never one of those people. He didn't volunteer at soup kitchens. That guy was getting drunk before he found out he was a half demon, you know? So (laughs) I don't know. I just, I found that to be a, a, like really heavy handed and just a bit much. I liked, you know, that Doyle had a background where he was, he was a different kind of guy, you know, but I mean like the core of who he is isn't going to change that dramatically. The person that Harry described is not even recognizable in Doyle now, you know, that's not even part of who he is. Um, Also, it seemed really weird that Cordy like didn't seem to have any idea that these were all demons, you know, um, Richard's family, you know, it seems like somebody could have given her a heads up when she's going to the bachelorette party with like demon women, you know, like that she should just like, (laughs) she should just be given a heads up, you know, yet when there's this thing about ingesting past love, when they're reading and doing the research, she makes the connection about it being Doyle, presuming that Richard is a cannibal. But I mean, it seems to me like that would be more of a jump that she would make if she knew that he was a demon. So like that felt a little weird to me because I don't remember. I mean, did I miss it where they told Cordy that Richard and his family were demons? No. Maybe there was okay. a memo on her desk. Right. That she <laughs> missed. I don't know. I don't know. Seems a little I don't bit know. weird. Yeah, it did. And if you're asking for the ex's blessing, and that mm-hmm. includes consent to eat their brains, right. you have to be more specific. 
Right. You got to give a dude a terms of service agreement, right? Yeah, I mean, come on, define your terms. Like right. Doyle is being selfless and kind, even though it hurts him. And he has no way of knowing what he's agreeing to. Oh, absolutely. And it, then when, you know, Richard is all offended, he's like, yeah. well, you didn't want me to eat your brains. You, didn't, you know, obviously you didn't say that. You know, I mean, he doesn't know your culture. He doesn't know that this is part of your culture. And, and also... You know, I mean, Harry, when she comes in, you know, and, and yells at them and stops them because these are people who are going to like eat somebody's brains. But if, if she comes in and yells at them, then they'll stop. Right. You know, right. he right. can object all he wants. But when she comes yeah. in and says, you know, shame on you and wags a finger at them, then they all stop, you know, right. which is kind of right. crazy. And Richard's but like, I mean, I'm going to take my lobster bib and my shrimp fork and go home. I know. Ridiculous. Oh, my God. <laughs> It is. It's just, it's really, really kind of stupid. But, you know, she's an ethnodemonologist. She knows that this is his his history. And she actually says that's, you know, that's an old, you know, custom. And you right. should know. But, I mean, this is the kind of thing that, like, she knows she's, you know, with this clan. She's hanging out with these people. Like, if they would do that, then she would ask that question and be like, all right, now I'm just saying, you're not going to eat his brains, right? You know, because like she knows all of this stuff. (laughs) Like she would kind of clear that ahead of time. Uh So I find it just completely bizarre. And then we have that moment where, you know, Doyle is in the middle of the fight. He, He takes on his demon self so that he can be presumably stronger, you know, more super or whatever in a fight. Um, and then Cordy hits him in the head with a, with a tray, you know, and then mm-hmm. turns around and says, Oh, Doyle, you know, not realizing that it's of course the same guy. Yeah. Um, which to me, like, I'm not sure if I hate that or like it. <laughs> yeah, me too. I, I kind of thought the same thing and yeah, um, yeah, but I never want to hear the nickname Hun Bun again oh, for God. as long as I live. No, that's pretty terrible. It was awful. And <laughs> it did. And again, I couldn't decide if I hated this or if I liked it, mm-hmm. but when Doyle was, you know, sad at the end and Cordy went to cheer him up, she said, hi, Doyle, are you going to become loser pining guy like full time now? Because, you know, we already have one of those around the office. <laughs> and I just thought, didn't Cordelia get motivational speaker on career day? Yes. Like, I think <laughs> so I couldn't decide if I, if yeah. I liked it, but it was kind of mean. So. I know. No, I, I kind of liked that, actually. But yeah, but it's one of these things that like, we, we it, it can be good. And then it just there's something that like also makes it a little cringy. So I yeah. don't know. Yeah, that, I, don't I know. guess that's it's, where it's I was. pretty good. All right. So Dr. Jones, where are we with research mode? What do you okay. got? So I had three questions for this episode. And the mm-hmm. first one is for you, because I'm trying yes. to learn some of the narrative terms and, and story structure and theory. Mm-hmm. So that exact moment when Cordy invites Doyle for a mochaccino and she's getting kind of, you know, warmed up to him is the same exact moment that his wife shows up. Is right. that mm-hmm. an irony smash? No, it's not. Not really. Um, if Cordy had said, I never wanted to date a fixer upper, but at least he isn't married. Right. And then she walks in. That would be an irony smash. An oh. irony smash is immediate and it's hit really hard. Okay. Um, what we have here is, is this gentle turn, right? This is an emotional turn, right? You know, she's looking at him and we find out that she likes him. And then his wife comes in and her hopes are dashed. So that's really more of like a, it's, it's like a narrative moment of if you want something, you cannot have it. 
you know. Okay. Um, and there is a slight bit of that irony to it, you know, that like as soon as she starts liking Doyle, of course, his his wife shows up, you know, and that he was married and then never bothered to get divorced, which is always one of these things that we use that like somebody's showing up because they have to get the divorce paper signed because they never actually got legally divorced and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. Because it's one of those motivational things like why does she have to come see him before she's about to get married? But we right. see this over and over and over again. It's always that they need the divorce papers signed, you know. Um, and so, you know, we have that that kind of thing going on where he was married this whole time while he was pursuing Cordelia. I mean, obviously they weren't together, but still like it's just it's just a weird it was a weird thing to throw in there. And I don't think it works at all. But mm-hmm. that was not an irony because that irony smash is usually about that funny. Like, here's the exact opposite of what I just said. OK, you know, so, yeah, I'm looking for a term because I see this all the time in stories mm-hmm. and I recognize it when I see it, but I don't know what to call it. It's like, oh, character figures out what she wants. Oh, character can't have it back to back. Right. So I just, I don't know. I kind of can't. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't come up with a term for that yet, but I'll think about it and see if I can, I can give that some, uh, some terminology because I know how you are about defining terms. Yeah, I have totally. We need to define those terms. I need Uh, to start writing up a glossary of all this stuff. Yes. Oh my God. (laughs) Yes. We need a glossary. Right. But, I just because every when you see these things happen, like I mean, somebody else may have named it at some point, you know. But like, mm-hmm. I'll just give it a name. I'll just call it like a fracture tease or whatever, you know. Yeah. And I don't realize that I'm like building a, a terminology as I do this. I just sort of do it because I want to have something to call it. So oh I'll think God. I'll think of something for that because it really is like it's it's a narrative turn. Like it's mm-hmm. not necessarily like really you know always played for humor, but it's this thing where like if we have a character, they can't have what they want. Right. The main characters, any of the main characters cannot right. have what they want. If but they get what they want, the story's over. I think it's that unique combination of yeah. realization followed mm-hmm. immediately by denial. Immediately. Yeah. No, like that is. That, um, that combination. Yeah. Um, no, that's interesting. I'll, so, I'll think of yeah. that. Oh, I look that. forward I to the notorious LDR glossary. <laughs> right. <laughs> and speaking of defining terms, I yes. had so much fun geeking out about the research potential of this episode. Because when Harry said, I'm an ethnodemonologist, I was like, wait, that's a thing? Right. You can study demons? Like, (laughs) you know, ethno meaning relating to the study of different societies and cultures. And I was like, oh, my God, how Mm -hmm. and where did she get that training? I want to know everything. Like, is there a supernatural university? Are Uh there more experts besides watchers? Is there an IRB process? Like, (laughs) are there textbooks? Are there citations? Like, oh my God, citations to know everything. That would make you so happy. Well, I'm almost certain without even looking on the internet that somebody has written like a Buffy demon, you know, um, book, I'm sure, you know, giving all the demons, 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 the website. We'll have to see if that exists. But yeah, I thought that was kind of neat that she's an ethnodemonologist. I thought that was interesting. That, of course, explains why she she started to get get an interest in demons, of course, when Doyle turned. And I thought that that was really interesting. And then she ended up embracing it and he ended up rejecting it, which is part of himself. So Mm -hmm. um, so I thought that was really interesting. But yeah, like, where do you study for that? Like, hellmouth you? Like, where where do you go for that? You know? (laughs) Um, and of course, again, like if she was an ethnodemonologist, she would have known about the eating of the brains. She would have cleared that with the family ahead of time, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I find that to be a uh, really kind of an interesting bit of world building and mm-hmm. something that we don't really go anywhere with, but cause it seems to me like right now, all the ethnodemonologists must be self-taught, right? Because yeah. we're still living in a world where this is all secret, you know? Right. But I mean, the, the, maybe the Watchers Academy, I don't know. 
I don't know. I, I was yeah. just so intrigued. I was like, yeah. forget the bad narrative structure. Tell me about the study. Like, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but the whole ritual around eating the ex-husband's brains and ingesting past love was problematic because what are they saying about divorce and women being yes. property, like mm-hmm. taken from one husband and given to another because they specifically said husband. Right. So does the same ritual hold true for ex-wives? No, oh, it would appear no. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I'm just I don't saying. know. I I didn't think that that was... <laughs> It it was incredibly patriarchal and it does have this element of possessiveness that I have to, I have to have everything. And that kind of goes back to that. What was she like Doyle? Right. You know, like he has to possess all of her. Right. And it is, it is really creepy. It was. I thought it was. Yeah. All yeah. right. So what are we brooding on? Well, we get Doyle's backstory mm-hmm. and I can't help but like him after this episode. Yeah. Because, you know, he's all vulnerable and sad. Um, and then we get, Doyle's vision about Buffy, which sends Angel to watch over her in the Buffy season four episodes, Pang, Mm -hmm. which leads us into next week's Angel crossover episode, I Will Remember You, which is absolutely brilliant. It is so good. And heartbreaking. Yes. So if you haven't seen it, be prepared to cry because damn. Oh, yeah. Not just cry. You're going to sob. Yes. So it's so good. <laughs> it is. It is so incredibly good. All right. So that ends our episode of Still Dead today. We got to finish up with our favorite part. Kelly, what is your favorite part of these two episodes? So I think it was Doyle. Oh, um, wow. This was when I started to care about him for mm-hmm. real. And my favorite line was Cordelia telling Angel about Doyle after he saved her from the heavy metal vamps. Mm-hmm. She said he was really beaten up. But you know, the first thing he asked, are you okay? Yeah. And like that showed Doyle's actual concern for her instead mm-hmm. of just his crush on her. And it showed her and us that he's the good guy, mm-hmm. you know, and I really felt for him in this episode as a person with real loss and vulnerability and as mm-hmm. a human connection for Angel and kind of a substance realization for Cordelia because he does have hidden depths. Yeah. Really, really hidden depths. <laughs> have a good heart yeah he kind of no it definitely makes me like Doyle more you know I mean I think that we get we get much much better Doyle uh in this Mm -hmm. episode than than we have gotten so far not that that's a terribly high bar (laughs) yeah but it's good what was your favorite part um I love I I love sensitive angel Mm -hmm. and I love angel as Herb Saunders I love whenever we get angel outside of broody Batman you know and I mean I like Batman too basically the only thing I don't like is the broody yeah. you know yeah but um but yeah i like i like a uh, sensitive angel it was kind of fun yeah and that hawaiian shirt was adorable that hawaiian shirt was adorable i absolutely loved it all right that's it for today to join in the discussion on twitter follow me at lonnie diane rich and kelly at dr kelly jones and use the hashtag still dead the best place for all the great discussion is on the patreon discord chat just a dollar a month of support gets you in with some of the smartest angel geeks around but we also have forums if you go to chipperish.com up at the top you will see a link to the forum and people are having discussions there too so there's tons of places to engage with us talking about these episodes absolutely and this This episode of Still Dead was brought to you by Chippersh Media producer Mandy Kay. Mandy Kay supports Chippersh Media at the power producer level and as a reward gets to produce whatever show she wants. And we love her. 
Yes, we do. Mandy <laughs> Kay, for those of you who are not familiar, is from Eloquent Gushing. Uh, she does a number of podcasts, one of which is uh, Southern Fried Pop Culture with our own Dr. Kelly Jones, which is fantastic. Both Thank women you. from the South who talk about um, about pop culture from the South. And you guys have brilliant discussions on that show. I absolutely love it. Um, she also does Pop Culturally Deprived because Mandy Kay, for a lot of her life, did not engage a lot with pop culture. So she's coming to it now. So movies that everybody else has seen, mm-hmm. Mandy has not seen. And she talks about that with her wonderful co-host, Matthew Vose. So definitely check out eloquentgushing.com where you can find more about Mandy Kay. Absolutely. So thank you, Mandy Kay. And thank you to everyone who supports Chipperish Media and makes all of this possible. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how you too can become a Still Dead producer. And if you like this podcast, give us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd appreciate it, but we won't be honored enough to eat your brains. The Bachelor Party aired on November 16th, 1999. It was directed by Dave Strait... Oh, not Dave. David. Apparently we're close friends now. All right, let me start that over again. <laughs> Apparently we're close friends. Apparently, apparently I just level jumped a friendship with Dave. We're buds now. All right.